The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, um, it's really nice to be here. This is the second time I'm teaching uh, on Thursday night. And um, tonight I wanted to talk about the middle path or the middle way. I don't know, I think a lot of times um, you hear that term or you may use that term yourself as I did for many years and um, I was recently on a self-retreat at Forest Refuge um, feeling really grateful for practice and um, I listened to one of Joseph's talks because I was just going, I wonder how all this started even though I'd heard the story so many times I listened to his talk um, on turning the wheel of the Dharma or setting the Dharma wheel in motion and um, uh, he reads from one of the, the Buddha's first discourses and he talks about the middle path. And something clicked for me, like I had a clear understanding of the middle path. And um, it's been something that's on my mind since I've been back. And so um, I thought I would share with you my early misunderstandings <laughs> of the middle path. Um, and now, you know, I guess what it means to me or how I can apply it. I found some really helpful suggestions in that talk about how to apply or follow or use the teachings of the middle path and uh, for our daily lives and most of us who are householders and lay practitioners and not monastics. Um, that can be really challenging. So I want to talk about how to, um, how we can maybe face some of those challenges in our daily life and also in our formal sitting practice. So, um, the first time I ever heard the term the middle path was after I was, um, or during I was sitting a long retreat at Spirit Rock. And uh, I had actually never read anything about Buddhism. I had never studied anything. But I had, had a daily practice for maybe a year or so and I really felt motivated and compelled to do a long retreat. And um, I was doing a practice interview with uh, Jack Cornfield, and um, I had had a wonderful, beautiful retreat, a lot of heart opening, and uh, he was asking me as I was getting ready to go back into the world, you know, um, we had been meeting for a month, and he was like, Jin Kwan, have you ever been a bad girl? <laughs> and I was a little surprised by that, but I've had felt, I felt so open, and I felt like I could be honest, and I said, oh my God, Jack, I've been so bad, you know, because all the things of my life had come up in that two-month retreat, all the things that I thought I had really messed up on or um, done so unskillfully. And he says, that's okay, you know. He had seen how I had been practicing, which was very kind of obedient and rigid. I think I went to every sit for two months. <laughs> um, and that was ingrained. And he was like, you know, now it's the time for the middle path. <laughs> he, I think he was afraid that I was going to take the, that kind of rigidity or um, strictness of my practice out into the world. And having his wealth of experience, he realized that that wasn't going to serve me very well. And he was trying to ease me into a daily life practice where I didn't have to, you know, indulge myself in all the worldly sense 
pleasures, nor did I have to live like a monk, like I had been doing on that retreat for two months. Um, and I don't think I really knew what he meant when he said that to me. You know, I was just like, okay, I'll find my middle way. <laughs> I don't really know what that means, but I'll find my way somehow. And then I kind of just forgot about it. I've heard the term a lot in the last five or six years since I've been practicing. And, and, and then I was like, I wonder really what that means. You know, I mean, I've heard the teachings of the path is the noble eight full path. Um, But that can be kind of hard to hold for a lot of us in our daily life to kind of remember, what's the Eightfold Path again? Right effort, right livelihood, right? (laughs) And I found in Joseph's talk a really simpler way of applying how to live in the world, meet the challenges of um, this world we live in, which we're constantly, I think, um, bombarded with ads and and ideas and notions and suggestions and temptations of um, how to enjoy sense pleasures. And I think there can be some difficulty in trying to live in the world to enjoy them without indulging or creating more craving. And so what I did for a lot of my life after that retreat was realizing what indulging in sense pleasures could lead to, I just didn't do any of it. (laughs) I just thought, stay away completely, (laughs) and that I would be safe and protected. But I really felt, over time, that I was missing out. And I was actually denying myself really some, you know, genuine pleasures of living in the world in a healthy way. So, how to balance that, you know? Um, And... The reason that clicked for me in that talk was Joseph read from the Buddha's first discourse. Um, Right after his enlightenment, he was wondering whether or not, you know, anyone would be able to hear what he had learned and understand and receive it. And so when he decided to actually give the teachings, um, this is what he taught, how to live the middle path. So I want to read that for you, and then I want to kind of expound on why, why it really clicked for me, or something really made a lot of sense. So um, I left my notes at home, <laughs> and luckily one of my colleagues was here, and he, was, he helped me find that first discourse in one of these thick, heavy books that I've never picked up before. <laughs> but um, I knew it was there somewhere in the library, so... This is the, uh, the Buddha's first discourse, and it's called Setting in Motion the Wheel of the Dhamma. And it goes, Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Varanasi in Deer Park, Deer Park at Isipatana. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus of the group of five thus. Bhikkhus, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What to? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldlings, ignoble, unbeneficial. And the pursuit of self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, unbeneficial. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, 
which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbāna. So it was this paragraph that when Joseph read this, I had only been concentrating on the first one, the pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, and how to meet that challenge, because I felt that's, that was my big challenge. I didn't feel like living the life of an ascetic was really applying to me, and I'm not sure that it applies to most of us, that we're not trying to, the way they did at the time of the Buddha, a lot of people were doing these practices. But then during the talk, as, as Joseph kind of explained a little further, on the surface it may seem that way, but underneath what I realized what I was actually ignoring and not paying much attention to was the subtle ways in which we kind of judge ourselves or condemn ourselves or um, do our own brand of self-mortification on a regular basis. And I don't think, I think that part was really key for me to kind of clue into and realize that way neither. So it's first of all to recognize that and to see that, I see that in a lot of, not just myself, but I see that with a lot of people, that they really suffer with a lot of judgment with a lot of um, guilt or with a lot of other things that are deeply conditioned. And really, how do we not nourish and feed that as well? Because that also is not going to serve us as much as indulging in every, you know, worldly sensual pleasure is either. So that really started to make, oh, the middle path. (laughs) And then it, it was really like, oh, it can't just be focusing on not doing that thing, which I thought was the biggest challenge of the world, because this is what we see all the time. And even as I drive home from the center, it was like, oh, pass the donut shop. Oh, pass the burger joint. Oh, pass this. It's like one, you know, desire after another after another that I see pop up in my mind. But when I'm sitting in practice, I noticed, wow, the subtleties of the mind that also... um, oh, I'm not really doing that right, or my practice was so rigid, you know, I had to do everything perfectly and wasn't when it wasn't perfect. Wow, the judgment and the punishment was severe and very painful. Um, so I think I wanted to um, give some time or some focus or something for to allow us time to reflect and see whether or not that's also a place of practice for us. I was teaching basic uh, instruction here a few weeks ago and um, one, of the, one of the people was her first time and she said, at the, at the end I said, well, what's that like? She was like, oh my God, all I saw was judgment. Judgment after judgment after judgment. And she said, it's so painful. And I felt like... I didn't give it enough time to explain to her that's okay in a way. Like I said, okay, what I would suggest was to go into the body and see what that's like and kind of stop the judgment where you see it and not to feed it. 
But I felt like I did her a disservice because I really didn't give, or didn't, I don't know, it felt like I didn't, explain or he explained well enough that that is really also a moment of compassion for us or whatever it takes when you see that it seemed like compassion was more important for her than the mindfulness practice at the moment and I really feel like for each of us we have to find our way what works best and sometimes mindfulness works fine. Once people see judgment, oh, that's judgment. And then they can just go in and see with a mindfulness practice how to work with that. And for others, it's so deeply ingrained that there needs to be some tenderness or understanding that it's not your fault. That there needs, there, there wasn't an understanding of causes and conditions. There wasn't an understanding of karma. There wasn't an understanding of these things in place to hold that seeing of that judgment with compassion to apply mindfulness practice to. So sometimes I'm not sure, you know, how clearly we see. Most of the times I think I'm pretty confused. <laughs> I've enjoyed the clarity of a deep retreat and over the last nine days it's really been watching the clarity and concentration and mindfulness gradually erode. And, you know, there I left my notes at home on my way here. So um, how to be okay with that? How to be okay with what we're dealing with, with, with what we have in the moment? So... Um, Yes, so this is the moments of when I don't have my notes. I'm kind of doing a little <laughs> mental, <laughs> mental gymnastics. Um, so how to apply it in daily life? Um, how do we find the middle way for ourselves? How do we find the middle path? Um, Do we have a clear enough understanding all the time of the Eightfold Noble Path ready in the back of our minds (laughs) to jump to which which thing we need to add a little bit more of? And for me, that's been really challenging. You know, I've tried at times. Certain things have come up in in the foreground more than others. But really, this time during this retreat, it was like, oh, I just... I need to be more gentle. There was this kindness, this um, quality of kindness. And... And that's particular to me because I feel like the harsh voice, the condemning voice, the critical voice, those things are quite strong. And even though I've seen it over time, I'm not sure I see it all the time. And it's there in so many subtler ways. Um, and I'm, I'm, maybe we don't have to see it all the time, but the message that came really clear to me was, oh, well then be gentle with yourself when you feel you've overindulged, to be gentle with yourself, when you feel that, you know, you're being hard on yourself. I mean, it can be so quick, the mind. When I listened to Joseph's talks on retreat, it was, there was such a receptivity, because I had been there for a week or so. There was so much gratitude for the practice, which is why I wanted a refresher on how the wheel of the Dharma was set in motion. So much gratitude, you know, and... In that retreat, there was like, wow, 
I never, I rarely take the time out in my daily life to allow gratitude to unfold, to take a few moments to say, wow, um, the fact that we're all sitting here in the room receptive to and listening to a, a Dharma talk is actually pretty huge, you know, whatever causes and conditions that were set in motion that allowed this to happen, you know. There was so much happiness around that for me that that I could hear it, that it could be received. My heart could really accept it. And, um, you know, I make mental notes in retreat. Okay, try and do that when you come back out <laughs> in daily life. And, you know, it, it actually is beautiful to be able to prepare for a talk because sometimes re-listening to the talk, it's like, oh, okay, you know, the moments come back. And it's actually quite beautiful. And practice can be very challenging. So can there be times when um, we just relax into the moment and just appreciate that there was someone that sat under a tree and actually figured this all out (laughs) and was willing to share it with, and it passed down over 2,500 years. And I get it through another Western teacher, and hopefully something of it passes through and... For me, it was just finding that. And this is just an encouragement to see what it is that works for you. To find what it is, you know, how does the Dharma come into you? What it is when you find yourself really struggling? What are the things that help you? Is it more mindfulness? Is it compassion? Is it gratitude? Um, Is it sangha? Um, Because I noticed when I listened, you know, I listened to the talk again today, and I was listening to all of Joseph's beautiful examples and his wealth of of experience and his clarity, and I just watched my mind go, oh, I'll never be able to give a Dharma talk like that. And it was like, boom, okay, there's that same tendency, you know, but it was like, oh, it's okay, you know, you can give, you'll give the Dharma talk that you can give, with or without notes. and and I just like you know can be grateful for the practice that I would never have seen that you know had I not been receptive to a mindfulness instruction way back when to even be interested in following the breath you know to be able to see things like that and see the conditioning and know it's not anyone's fault but to how to work with it skillfully you know that we don't always have to believe that conditioning the thoughts and what works for us to actually want to see clearly and understand what we see in a way that's not going to crush us. <laughs> because a lot of what we see will not be that pleasant. Um, so, the second part of what I wanted to share was like, how do we apply the middle path, or what does it mean for us to follow the middle path in our formal sitting practice. Um, And there are so many examples of how we can sit and be really hard on ourselves. I don't know, in the beginning, I don't know if I have Zen history or whatever, but I didn't move. (laughs) I was like, I'm not going to move. And I sat through excruciating pain. And that was really a way of practicing self-mortification. I wasn't doing myself any good. But I couldn't see that. I just thought I was 
I was doing the practice the way they, they said. And then finally when I saw that, I can't, this is not helping me. This is, I'm tense, I'm not seeing anything except pain and suffering and my mind is so tight. And finally when I could relax, then it was like, oh, okay, well then I can move anytime I want to move. <laughs> and, I was, and it took me a while to see that, wow, I was moving a lot and it was just, what I was practicing was aversion to any discomfort. It's like one extreme to the other extreme. It's almost like, I know teachers want to save you that journey. <laughs> they want to kind of try to you know, teach you so you don't have to go through that. But in a way, it was like, I don't think I could have avoided it. I had to see for myself and really experience. But hopefully, <laughs> the more you hear it, or the more you're more willing to see what it is in your own sitting practice, that can really uh, facilitate calm, concentration, and insight. And those can be kind of tools. If it's not facilitating that or leading to that, then that might be a sign, oh, there might be some tightness, or there might be too much, you know, restlessness, or there might be, you know, these are all little um, tools to use. In um, another way, also, I've done the same thing. Whenever beautiful states arose, Oh my God, <laughs> I want to stay here forever. <laughs> and how do I make this last? And how do I find it once it's gone? You know, it was like watching the mind do all these gymnastics over and over and over again. So, um, you know, not that pleasant to see that these are the, this is my mind, how many times I wanted to change, trade my mind in. But over time I realized every moment I actually wouldn't have traded in any, ever, any of those because it was the experience of that that leads to more clarity, that leads to really a deeper understanding because it comes from your own experience. So, I feel like um, I kind of shared what I wanted to share. I wanted to read the last bit of this First discourse. Um, and what bhikkhus is the middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which leads to Nibbana? It is this noble eightfold path that is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This bhikkhus is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to knowledge, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. So, I wanted to end there. And I, I think in this Thursday night, you opened the last half hour to questions and answers, protests, <laughs> like that word, Gil used that word and I love it, um, comments, any sharing. Well, I hope you were compassionate with yourself with what you told your student. Mm. Yeah, because that, that I could tell you were still, there was still some energy with it, so... Um, <clears throat> I found that I'm also, you know, I 
cause myself suffering from being harsh, having harsh judgments on myself. And I find that leads to, it's kind of like this, you know, too far one way, too far the other way. Then I want to go and, you know, eat chocolate or something, you know, to, to, to comfort myself from it, you know. So it's like, and the middle way is, that's not the middle way. So. Thank you for that. Um, it's actually pretty cool to see that. I, when I came back from retreat and I realized, um, oh my goodness, I was talking, meeting with a group of my girlfriends and I was like, I lost it. It's gone. <laughs> Concentration mind's gone. And they're like, I love you too, Shin Kwan. It's okay. <laughs> but we had dinner together after a sit and I was just sitting like this. And she's like, what's up? And I was like, I am craving a cigarette and a glass of wine because (laughs) I have lost it, you know. And I knew that it wasn't just a regular enjoyment of a worldly sense pleasure. It was to replace that which I lost, you know. So this is what you meant by I want chocolate right after I see this. So I think there's a difference when we notice that we, I think there are some people who can just enjoy Worldly pleasure. And from time to time, I can do it too (laughs) without feeling like I've indulged or without feeling like I'm creating more craving. Um, But it's really a skill to be developed, I find, for a lot of us. And and that's okay. (laughs) It's it's really not expecting a perfect outcome or practice all the time, I think. That's, yeah. So, So thanks. I have one comment. Um, I think in this society, we, uh, there are slogans trying to get people to motivated to do something. Um, and, and usually, uh, they are new, okay? And it's something that seems to be you know, quite good. But I think all the slogans have a tendency to overcorrect. And... Uh, um, but the difficulty is, you know, how much is too much? Okay, give you an example. You know, I heard slogans like, oh, I need to take care of myself first. But mm. the truth is, we don't always take care of ourselves first. You know, it all depends on the situation. And I think from time to time, there are always this kind of thing to get people to do something. And the hard part is to see, you know, what's the balance and not to overdo it. Yes, um, hard, difficult, challenging, and yet here we are. (laughs) This is, I think, the challenge of living in the world we live in. Um, How to take care of yourself is actually quite an endeavor, you know. It, It actually starts to go to many different levels, I found for myself used to be very surface, how do I take care of myself, just, you know, wash myself, you know, clean myself, feed myself, those kinds of things. But really, how to feed and nourish ourselves in a deep and meaningful way, I think this is what this practice really speaks to. Um, so that from that well of nourishment, um, skill, healthier, wholesome behaviors and motivations... I think it becomes less difficult, less challenging. 
And we become more forgiving, I find, when we can't do it right all the time. Um, Thank you. I just wanted to share a realization that I had sitting here. Um, Chin Kwan, you may not remember, but my name's Lauren, and we're in the Zen hospice training together. Mm-hmm, I do. Um, so I, it was several years ago that we knew each other, and, and I really enjoyed your company when we did know each other. So I was sitting here during your talk, really having a lot of positive intentions for your talk and hoping that you were satisfied with it and, and feeling a lot of fulfillment. And um, I just had a click because in, at work right now, I'm having a lot of challenging relationships, and I was thinking about how much it would change my experience if I, if I had as much compassion for everyone that I dealt with there and if I wanted all of them to be as successful. And I think that's absolutely something that I'd like to bring back with me into the world. So. Well, thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that, <laughs> as I'm sure they will. <laughs> so um, for me, I think uh, like a middle path is just acceptance that Taoism says the universe is folding, unfolding in perfect harmony. And it seems like when I just accept if I'm awkward or if I accept that I'm, you know, some other way, there isn't the resistance and the pressure on myself. I mean, I think my middle way is probably different than everybody else's here. Mm-hmm. And when I accept that I ate a lot of chocolate, it doesn't want, there's no clinging or craving for more. I just accept that that's me at the moment. Thank you. I was interested in what you were saying about self-judgment and maybe if you could comment a little bit more about it in terms, I guess, of you had some experiences in some recent uh, lengthy retreat. Uh, Self-judgment seems to me to be a pretty slippery thing to get hold of. It, It happens and sometimes you can see it happening directly, but most of the time it's kind of like a, a pretty murky thing that you, you do not see a self-judgment going on. You just see the world, and it's filled with self-judgment, but it's not really identifiable in a way. That, so I was wondering if you could maybe comment on that in terms of how you've experienced it and sort of ferreted it out as you've been sitting and, and trying to explore it and, and, and wrestle it. Um, I think it became really clear to me during a long retreat because then the mind is a lot quieter and I could actually see the, the thoughts and the judgments come up and how harsh they were. And, I, and it was also a perfect container because there you, I could hold that without blame. I mean, knowing that, you know, it wasn't my fault and that they came from somewhere and all of a sudden I have to figure out a way where I no longer just believe them all the time. Because not, it was not just the judgment, it's the belief around the judgment that was actually quite painful. Because you can believe there's something wrong with you, or you're not quite right, or if you don't do something perfect, there's something wrong. You know, I mean, there was all these things that all of a sudden started to emerge. And out in the world, I can't say I see them. It's like, it's, it's like you say, slippery slope. I know they're there behind, like underneath motivating a lot of my behaviors because they've been there since I was a kid or for whatever, however long. But every once in a while, the practices check in to see what's motivating you. Because knowing that a lot of it is going to be from this type of beliefs is enough sometimes. I don't have to see them all the time. 
But if I check in from time to time, what's motivating it? Is it greed? Is it this? Is it fear? Fear, fear is huge, so as not to get judged. <laughs> um, or is it actually from a place of, you know, and then I can switch. Then I can actually apply practice. So practice comes in sometimes really mysterious ways. Like you never know when the mindfulness practice will really come in handy. You're sitting there following the breath, sit after sit after sit, or day after day, year after year, but it's when these things come, oh, all of a sudden, bam, it really becomes useful. During family situations at Christmas or whatever, you know, when you, all of a sudden those old dynamics are really in place. And, you know, even if you think, even if I think I'm pretty much, you know, now I'm pretty mindful and stuff, you know, those conditions are really deeper than I want to admit or, you know, my consciousness wants to admit. But I can still say, okay, I'm going to sit and breathe before I react to something in my traditional or habitual way. And so maybe those are ways that I've actually started to apply. It's not that I have to see it all the time. It's great when I do. That's also switched. When I first used to see them, I was just like, oh my God, really? Is that what's been motivating me my whole life? You know, it wasn't this loving, accepting way of, oh yeah, that's fine. I'll just be fine. No, it was like everything. Yeah. And how do I get rid of it? You know, and that wasn't helpful. But there had to come through this some practice of, oh, it's not about blame and I don't take response. You know, it's not about, you know, thrashing myself again for having that belief, but it's really about what can I do skillfully now in the moment that I see it. Or even when I don't see it, how can I check in, you know, preemptively (laughs) or or whatever it is. So it's really um, an individual practice, though, for each person, I find. Each person finds their own way that works for them. For me, it's been a lot of compassion, a lot of tenderness is what it... Because it's like, I don't think I was ever tender to myself before I started practice. It was quite a new thing. And it was like, wow, it really made a huge difference. So each person, I find, sees what works for them. I hope that answers it. Question? Sort of, but uh, last question. Are, are you saying then that the compassion for yourself is, is a tool that enables you to more clearly identify your self-judgment? It's not, no, I actually think it's mindfulness and concentration that actually bring clarity for that. But compassion helps me hold that. Understanding of causes and conditions help me hold that without creating more judgment, without creating more self-blame or loathing. Um, I really like what you said um, already three times, that it's not your fault. It comes from somewhere. That's, that's really neat. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. I, I thought about it in similar ways, but not in that way, um, where, where you realize that a lot of the negative thoughts that you have do come from somewhere. Um, and also, I've been trying to... It's, it's interesting, this talk, because I've actually been trying to deal with that a lot lately and, and trying to differentiate the difference between taking responsibility for yourself and then judging yourself too harshly. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a, sometimes it's, it's a fine line. And um, I've been learning to do that a lot lately. Like, even, even tonight, I was thinking, oh, 
One, at one point, I got very impatient with myself. I actually just, because my, my stomach was growling and, and um, my mind was racing as usual, and I have to bring myself back a million times, and, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm sure everyone else is having an easier time meditating <laughs> than I am, and no. I just, you know, stop it, get back, get back, here, you, know, just, you know, and it's... it's so I don't even know why I try. I mean, because I was, you know, this kind of thing. And then you launch into this talk. So it's right on for me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I couldn't turn off the music tonight in my head. But... Um, when I, I see judging other people in my mind, you know, my mind is rolling around about judging other people, and and I find that it's a that I'm def, I'm I'm ju- being so critical of other people because I'm deflecting the criticism from myself, so that that's a a clue to me that there's something else going on behind that has more to do with me than all these other people. So it's much easier to, I mean, it's sort of this, hello, you know, see where this is going kind of thing. And I've I've found that uh, don't know mind is extremely helpful. Mm. And, you know, I just spent five days with my son and his girlfriend, and I don't really know them very well anymore, you know, and there's no reason, I mean, they're doing everything different than I do it, (laughs) (laughs) but it's working for them, and I mean, don't know mine was extremely helpful to, I mean, why should I, you know, pick a something or other with them about the way they don't clean the counters? I mean, they don't clean the counters 365 days a year, not just when I'm there. So, um, don't know mind is another technique of being um, kind to yourself, maybe, or kind to others. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm glad you you found that out, because for each person, it's really individual practice. You see what works for you. And it changes from time to time, from, yeah. Hi, I'm Mike Sanderson. I, I've been at the uh, the meditation center in South Bay with Shyla Catherine for the last year and a half. It's my first time coming up here. I've wanted to come visit for some time, but I really have enjoyed your talk and your sharing. Thank you. And everyone else's comments as well. I just wanted to add that um, there's a comment that comes to my mind uh, from a Western sage um, some hundred years ago or so on this topic, and it was on the topic of rules to live by and the number one rule was never smoke two cigars at the same time. <laughs> and the last rule is no other rules. So I, I kind of think about that a bit. And, of course, that was Mark Twain who had come up with that particular oh, thank observation. You for that. Um, but I wanted to add also to everyone else's comments, I think I might be the oldest here by so many years, but in my 63-plus years, Uh, I have to say that my vote is uh, compassion for others as well as oneself. 
is a highest aim and compassion for others as well as well as oneself as the highest means seems to me um, one of the most beautiful parts of, of being alive and certainly witnessing and receiving it. Thank you. That's beautiful. I know this is my second time, but <clears throat> just one comment to, to your comment is when you see judgment in yourself, sometimes it's easier for me to see myself as whoever that person is in your life who you love the most, your grandmother, your mother, your, your child. And would you treat that person that way? And it, you quickly determine that you're being quite unfair to yourself. And that helps me identify that moment. And then you figure out how to deal with it. The way I deal with the, this kind of situation is that... It's on. You just have to hold okay. it closer to your mouth. Okay. I just, I was um, taught to just accept people just the, the way they are. So it, it was a struggle for me too for so many years. But one day I just decided to just accept them the way they are. Oh, but it's like, oh, he's just that kind of person. He's just being himself. She's just that kind of person. She's just being himself, herself. So there's no judgment involved because they're just being themselves. So that helped me a lot in dealing with this kind of situation. Yes, we are all in the same boat. <laughs> Sometimes that line really helps me. And, and there's many times when um, I used to feel so separate and different, either better than or worse than or whatever. But a lot of times in practice when I see the huge... Um, range of human experience and conditions that we're all going to experience in this life, I really sometimes feel, oh my God, I'm no different than anyone else. And that's actually quite a beautiful feeling, connecting feeling, you know. Of course, I want to go out and hug everybody on no one. <laughs> to be careful not to go do that, but <laughs> thank you for that, yeah. Okay. Well, well, thanks so much, everybody, for sharing and uh, for listening to the Dhamma. And I just want to dedicate our practice for the benefit of all beings. May all beings be happy and may all beings be free. Thank you so much.